Communism, as a practical political theory, emerged in its modern form in the late 18th century. It was postulated and refined as a response to the still relatively newfound dominance of capitalism and how capitalism was set up. According to communist theory, capitalism relied on a division of the world into those who own the means of production, the capitalist class, and those who are forced to work for the capitalist class to survive, the working class. Communism is predicated on the supposedly inevitable clash between these two classes, the resulting victory of the working class over the capitalist class, and the resulting revolution that would bring a new, better outcome, though the specifics of that outcome vary depending on which philosopher you listen to. In some cases, the new world order is oriented around some kind of government predicated on social ownership of all means of production, meaning the people, through some ownership scheme or another, own all the factories and land. There is not a distinction between wealthy and worker anymore. Because everyone who works the fields owns part of those fields. Everyone who works in a factory has a vested interest in the success of that factory. Other perspectives take things even further, though, imagining a sort of anarchic scenario where governments are no longer a thing. Politics cease to exist. Ownership is no longer a meaningful term. And people organize more organically and naturally than was possible to imagine previously first in the age of monarchs and then in the age of aristocrats. The first real power play by an overtly communist group was made by the Bolsheviks, who took over Russia after the 1917 October Revolution, which led to the fall of the Russian czars, who were, at the time, led by Nicholas II. Basically, the military helped usurp the crown, there was a five-year civil war, and then in 1922, the Soviet Union became the new official government, and its ideology was shaped by the Bolsheviks, who were at the time led by a man named Vladimir Lenin. This turn of events was actually a bit of a surprise to the Marxists around the world, Marxism being a fundamental philosophy that underpins communism. And although Marx himself had stated that Russia, specifically, for a variety of reasons, might be the exception to the rule, it was commonly assumed by him and by his adherents that communism would arise at the apex of capitalism, not from outside it. So it was assumed that places like the United States and other bastions of capitalistic thought would cycle on through their wealthy, economically divided period before reaching a point of intense division where the haves and have-nots were at their breaking point, which would then lead to a revolution, tipping everything over into a new system run by the working class. That Russia, one of the poorer nations of the world, and until recently, at the time, run by a monarchy, would become an official communist state was unexpected. But there it was, and they bet their country's future on a series of five-year plans. And for the first three of these five-year segments, everything seemed to go pretty well. They grew and grew, even throughout the Great Depression period that wrought such havoc around the capitalistic world. 
though it's important to note that part of that success was predicated on their natural resource wealth, not necessarily anything that they were doing intentionally. But all the same, they succeeded during a period when it was difficult to succeed, and they even survived the top-down power grab of their own leader, Joseph Stalin, who instigated what came to be known as the Great Purge from 1936 until 1938. It was an act intended to reinforce Stalin's power that involved killing as many as 1.2 million people, his own people, for not being Soviet enough. Mobile gas vans were driven around cities, and citizens and government officials were loaded into these vans without trial to be gassed to death, their bodies then hauled to sprawling mass grave sites outside of town. A great many leaders who had played vital roles in the revolution that established the Soviet Union as a government were killed during this purge. Their supposed crime was to not be loyal to the Soviet Union, which in this case meant that they were political threats to Stalin. The Soviet Union's victory during World War II helped establish it as a superpower in the post-war world. But much of Eastern Europe and Asia were already considering the communist model for their own governments before that, having seen the Soviets seemingly leapfrog past the trials and tribulations that were inherent in the capitalistic model pre-World War II, evolving within mere decades from poverty to seeming wealth, from being a pariah state, one of the poorest in the world, to one of the most powerful and well-regarded nations worldwide, all in a very short period of time. This led to a variety of new models of communism, many of them based on the successful Soviet model, and many of them, like the Soviet model, destined to be stuck in the dictatorship of the proletariat stage of communist development, which was a concept posited by Marx which said, in essence, that between the capitalistic stage and a semi-utopian pure communism stage, a society would almost certainly have to go through a stage in which a dictatorship run by a panel of workers would control all means of production, would divvy out ownership of all possessions as equitably as possible, would decide who does what task, who holds what position, who gets how much food, how many tires are produced each year, and essentially every other aspect of the government and economy. This centrally planned nature of the Soviet Union is what led to the establishment of Joseph Stalin as the authoritarian leader of a country that purported to not be an authoritarian state, and is what subsequently led a variety of nations in the area to follow the same model, some of them cynically claiming to be communists in order to gain the favor of their larger superpower neighbor, the Soviet Union, and some barely making the effort to conceal their power grab, their strongman-led coups in the guise of communism. It basically allowed many authoritarians to take control while calling their dictatorships something else, something that made their power grabs seem noble and good, as if their efforts were for the workers and would someday lead to a worker-led utopia. You just have to suffer for a while under this dictator in the meantime. The Soviet Union declined and then collapsed in the early 90s, and many of the regional communist and pseudo-communist nations have since shifted their approach to either become full-fledged capitalism-powered democracies or a variation of the same, doing kind of what they did with communism, where they go through the motions using the right terms, but instead of calling their dictator the head of the workers' party, 
They call their dictator president and rig the elections to ensure that he remains in power. China is the one remaining success story of the communist model, and that has been in part thanks to their adaptability in the post-Cold War era. They still favor central control of many things, and five-year plans still guide their actions, but they've also adjusted their approach to dealing with the rest of the world, developing their new, unique communism with capitalism model that has allowed them to benefit from some of the best parts of the free market commercial system while still centrally controlling these efforts by tying their entrepreneurs, regulators, and law enforcement systems to their authoritarian party-based system. It is still essentially a dictatorship, in other words, but it's a dictatorship that plays well within the globalized, capitalism-driven world market. What I would like to talk about today is a concept that came of age alongside communism, but which is generally less about centrally controlled governments and purges of the disloyal, and more about the treatment of and the economic and governmental empowerment of the everyday person within a particular system of government. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from Politico, and it's entitled Seattle Flirts with Municipal Socialism. And the subheader is thus, quote, The $15 minimum wage was just the beginning. Now Seattle is trying to build a whole safety net for workers and triggering a war with its biggest companies, end quote. This is a long-read piece of journalism, but it is absolutely worth your time if you want to better understand things like the conflict between local governments and corporations, how throngs of everyday people are often mobilized by both sides to counter the efforts of the opposing side, and how all components of this little melee are both reliant upon and sometimes antagonistic toward all the other components, especially on a local level but increasingly on a national and international level as well. Before I get into the specifics of that piece, though, let's quickly run through some definitions. Perhaps most important, if you want to understand this piece, is a word contained right there in the headline, socialism. Socialism is an often misused term that applies to a broad swath of economic and social systems that favor the well-being of workers, of employees, some flavors of socialism are similar to communism in that they imply a complete reworking of a nation's government and or economy to give control of the means of production to the workers. Basically, communism without the revolution. So collective or public ownership that emerges peacefully because everyone decides that it makes sense rather than through a violent uprising or government overthrow and the liberal use of guillotines to remove the economic ruling class from power, that's socialism. It's also something that doesn't necessarily require that a society reaches the apex of capitalistic overreach before the folks within that society get wise and start countering some of that overreach. One of the key differentiators between most modern forms of socialism is whether a particular flavor of the concept interacts with the market or replaces it. So you could have a type of socialism that theoretically completely does away with money and the stock market and the concept of businesses and ownership as all of those things exist today. 
And you could have a type of socialism that plays well with all of these things, and instead just adjusts them, or adjusts the framework of the systems around them, to make the capitalistic world, and the world of money and business and ownership, more friendly to everyone, rather than just favoring the wealthy few. Now, that latter definition is the one that is most commonly used today, in a world in which our current version of capitalism has become the de facto mechanism by which governments and individuals exchange value with each other. It's theoretically possible that you could start a new country, or have a revolution and form a new government and extricate yourself and your people from the global capitalistic system completely. But it wouldn't be easy, and it would, as a practical matter, set you outside the modern global superstructure of value exchange, meaning you would have trouble buying things your country can't produce on its own, or selling things that you have in abundance, which would almost certainly relegate your country to developing world status forever, unless you had some kind of Wakanda-esque resource that allows you to operate independently of the rest of the world in perpetuity, which is unlikely outside of fiction. Even North Korea, hermit-like and separated from the world as they are, make a great deal of their government income from businesses that they own elsewhere. And they keep their supply levels steady by purchasing things that they cannot produce themselves from other countries. So for most intents and purposes, when we discuss socialism today, we are not debating philosophy, and we're usually not talking about replacing all of our existing mechanisms for value exchange with something entirely new. We are more likely talking about systems that shift things to support or even favor the working class in contrast to the default setting of capitalism, which is to favor the asset-owning class. So socialism, as discussed in this article, is about adjusting governmental settings to help people who work for a living, rather than almost exclusively helping people who make the majority of their income from stocks and real estate and things like that. Now, this is an imperfect distinction, of course, as there are a lot of people out there who make tons of money from their stock holdings, but who also work their asses off creating new things, running companies, and so on. It's generally understood that the working class in these types of discussions is a label that applies primarily to the middle and lower economic classes. But that's not always the case. Sometimes socialism is code for favoring the lower economic castes. Sometimes it is code for people-centric rather than corporation or government-centric. Sometimes it's code for anti-capitalist. It totally depends on the circumstance, who is using the term, and what the discussion is about. It's probably a good idea to note up front as well that just because a group calls themselves socialist does not mean that they are. The Nazis' official party name was the National Socialist German Workers' Party, but they were socialists in the same way that North Korea, whose official name is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, is democratic. It's a name. It's not reality. And by that same token, a lot of policies that we wouldn't necessarily think of as being socialistic actually are. They are not labeled as such, but they were introduced to favor people. All people rather than exclusively the people who could afford whatever benefits are on offer. Public schools, for instance, and making education free for everyone, kindergarten through 12th grade, that is a socialist policy. 
Public libraries are socialist in nature. They are for the public benefit of everyone, not just a certain segment of society that can afford to pay for access to all those resources. Fire departments, police departments, all departments that maintain law and order are entities that exist for everyone, for the people in general, not just an elevated economic class. Park rangers and the national and regional park system that are maintained by the government, these are all socialist expenditures. They are for the enjoyment of the people, for the everyman, just like roads and bridges and stoplights and sewage systems and clean water, municipal power systems, and the judicial system, the rule of law, the idea that everyone is protected by the law and can have their case heard, have law enforced in their name to protect them, that is socialist. Throughout most of history, these were services only offered to those who could pay for them or those who came from a particular social or economic class. The idea that you should be able to go to school and that you can expect there to be consequences for someone who attacks or robs you, these are all relatively new socialist concepts that many of us have come to take for granted. Both unions and workplace safety standards are also socialist in nature. These are protections for people who work for companies that, in essence, control the means of production. And for a long while, employers were able to fire anyone who was not willing to work 16 hours a day, 7 days a week, from age 8 onward, for incredibly little pay. And although the theory says that the free market will weed out bad behavior in the business world, the reality is that in addition to all the abuses employees have faced throughout economic history, lakes and rivers regularly caught fire when there were no environmental protection regulations in place to keep businesses from abusing the public commons by piping their waste into local bodies of water just because they could. Before worker protections, employees were regularly used up and thrown away by their employers because workers were abundant and businesses were structured in such a way that they could behave sociopathically without consequence. Socialist measures, in some cases in the form of government regulations, in some cases as a result of workers negotiating as a group, often through unions, have helped keep corporations from dumping their waste in public spaces and from deleteriously impacting the health and the lives of their employees. There are a lot of reasons that the word socialism has become a bad word to many people, including those who have most benefited from socialist policies. A big part of this terminological negativity is a consequence of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, during which anything that carried even a hint of communist ideology was considered to be antithetical to the good, wholesome, pure American way. And that sentiment has been bolstered by pro-business, pro-corporation politicians and other interests in the decades since, some of whom have been business owners themselves and who thereby benefited personally from keeping employee-centric laws off the books, and some of whom merely benefited from the revolving door relationship that politics has with business. They get high-paying jobs as lobbyists and such after their tenure in office so long as they tow the appropriate pro-business line while in government. And that applies to members of both major parties. There are incentives in place that encourage many people who hold power to favor those with the most money. Lobbying practices in particular allow those with the most financial resources to carry outsized weight when it comes to political happenings, though being able to buy ads and influence elections also plays a role here. 
few politicians hold their seats exclusively because of small donation fundraising. So power players in politics and power players in the business world, within many major economies at least, tend to run in the same social circles and tend to share interests both in how they build their wealth and in which policies would most benefit them and theirs. One other major conflict that exists in this space that I want to mention before getting back into the specifics of this article about Seattle is one that seems to exist between progress and the common well-being of individuals. And I say seems to exist because this is an implied, sometimes sort of supported theory, but one that is also fuzzy and which potentially does not have as strong a correlation as is often implied. But the idea is that in order to progress as quickly and powerfully as possible, especially when it comes to economic wealth and technological development, we have to get over our desire to ensure that everyone is treated safely and equitably. Part of why the development of new health procedures and medications can be such a sluggish process here in the United States is that we have rules on the books that outline the proper path to ensuring something is safe enough to use, as well as being effective. And a lot of that path takes place well before human trials can commence. We want to make sure that we are not injecting poison into someone's arm or giving test subjects medications that have crazy and unpredictable side effects. What that means in practice is that rather than being able to start testing a promising new drug on its intended recipient species immediately, there is a long slog through tests on other creatures, on other mammals, within machines, and then eventually on a very small group of people before researchers are allowed to move on to larger, more statistically useful groups of human test subjects. These regulations are arguably a win for most human beings in that it makes it less likely that powerful corporations will be able to coerce, economically or otherwise, desperate people into being guinea pigs for the testing of potentially very dangerous drugs. On the other hand, it slows down our process for developing drugs and procedures which could theoretically benefit a large number of people who for the time being do not have treatments or cures for something that ails them. Though importantly, those who benefit most would also likely be those who could actually afford these treatments. You could argue that the treatments may be cheaper if the research and development timelines were shorter, but that is somewhat speculative, as the pharmaceutical industry has not exactly proven itself to be a good faith actor when it comes to pricing on some of their drugs. But all the same, that to me illustrates one of the conflicts that exists between these two opposing ideologies. On one hand, we have the desire to grow, to progress, to increase our knowledge and our wealth and our capabilities as a species. And that is, from some perspectives, beneficial to the greater good. On the other hand, we have the desire to not sacrifice individuals and their well-being to make that progress. It's fine and good to say that you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, but it's notable that the people who say things like that generally do not expect to personally be those eggs. They are speaking about other people, people who are tested on, rather than people who are doing the testing. The picture looks a lot different, depending on which end of the potentially toxic experimental drug syringe you are on, and whether or not you stand to financially benefit from that drug's approval on the open market. 
So let's loop back around to that article about so-called municipal socialism in Seattle. Seattle is at an interesting place in that its government and general vibe is that of a progressive people-focused counter to some of the more conservative corporation-oriented legislation that exists elsewhere in the U.S. right now. At the same time, though, Seattle is also the home of some huge corporations, among them Amazon, Microsoft, Starbucks, REI, Nintendo of America, and T-Mobile, among many others. What we are seeing around the U.S. right now are super low unemployment numbers, which traditionally, in past decades, would have meant significant increases in worker wages. There are more jobs available than there are people to fill them, so if the market is working as it's supposed to, those workers should be earning more. They should get offered more by those employers to fill those seats. What's happening instead strangely, is the wages are staying fairly stagnant, even as inflation keeps puttering along at its standard rate, which has left the majority of American workers actually earning less than they were last year in 2017. Wages stay the same, the value of money that they're earning goes down, so it is a net loss for employees. Part of the issue here is that certain skills, once valued in the market are becoming less valuable as industries evolve. Part of the issue is that higher skilled veteran workers are beginning to retire and the folks who are filling their shoes are relatively lower skilled greenhorns. Part of the issue is that some of these jobs are not as productive as they once were in the sense that a once vital position is now mostly a placeholder for a button pusher rather than for someone who themselves is incredibly skilled beyond pushing a button. We are also seeing a whole lot more automation across the board, both in terms of physical infrastructure like manufacturing and construction robots and tools, which have become financially reasonable alternatives to paying more employees more money and in terms of software that can, again, reduce the real productive value of a human worker, as a lot of what that human accomplishes is actually done by their software that lives at the other end of the button that they push. In places like Seattle, though, and in places like Silicon Valley, this issue is amplified because of a relatively sizable economic overclass that exists between the venture capitalist overlords at the top and the service industry underclass, which serves the tech workers their coffee and cleans their homes and watches their children, they're way down at the bottom. We are talking an order of magnitude indifference between each of these three groups in terms of income, which is creating a sort of de facto caste system in cities that would seem to be doing quite well otherwise by other metrics. When minimum wage workers try to support themselves in a country where wages are not rising with inflation, as is the case in the United States on average, that's an issue that gets more pressing by the year. When those same people live in a city where the cost of living is skyrocketing due to the huge number of tech workers earning six and seven figure salaries, it becomes a problem that can dramatically change the local landscape and their own economic situation month to month. Lower-income workers are pushed to the fringes of the city, and then eventually out of the city, by steeply increasing rent prices and ever more expensive services and fundamentals like food. 
Their former apartment buildings are knocked down to make way for shiny new gentrification condos that are priced for those tech workers. And some people end up moving into their cars and into tents and into the streets as a consequence. And if you don't have the resources to afford the rent on a studio apartment in your hometown where you have a job, your career fortunes probably don't look much better in an unfamiliar city with a lower cost of living, where you also have no job, no relatives or friends, and no money in the bank after paying to get yourself there. So although these people are being forced into lower and lower rungs of society, their option to move to a place where costs are not as high is not really a great option. And in some cases, it simply is not an option due to the costs associated with moving, not to mention the lack of a job and friends and so on. Because of this ever-increasing disparity between the economic upper class and those who serve them, the Seattle government and some local organizations have pushed for changes to the law that would require, among other things, a $15 per hour minimum wage. That effort proved to be successful and began to roll out in 2014 with an intended completion date in 2024. So it's a pretty big jump for some workers in terms of income, but businesses are not required to fully implement it until a decade after the law was passed. This effort has been joined by other arguably socialistic policies, some of which have succeeded and some of which have failed, the local government tried to create a per-head employee tax for big companies in the area, for instance. And although the law passed, it was then forcibly withdrawn last month in June when Amazon organized a protest along with other big corporations in the area. The money earned from this effort was intended to support homeless programs for the city. But these corporations, by their very nature, are required to earn more money and as much as possible. They did not believe it was in their shareholders' best interest to make these payments to fund such programs, and they leveraged their significant economic and political power to make it go away. Uber also fought back against a policy that would have created a higher base rate for ride-sharing service rides, while also decreasing the number of ride-sharing cars on the road. They were not able to get a gang of other corporations to help them, but Uber was able to convince a bunch of their drivers to fill the seats at town hall meetings and to protest this act. The idea being that fewer drivers on the road by law and higher costs per ride would result in fewer people using services like Uber, which would be bad for the company and potentially for the drivers long term. The intended outcome was the opposite, to ensure that drivers made more by reducing competition and increasing the costs for riders by a small amount in hopes that more would go to the drivers. But Uber's message proved to be much more effective than the government's in this case. So it remains a mystery which move would have actually been more beneficial for the drivers, though we can say with relative certainty that Uber believed that this new policy would have been bad for their own corporate bottom line. What we are seeing in Seattle, and also to greater and lesser degrees in places like San Francisco and Austin and Boulder and Portland and other bastions of left-of-center social thinking, are moves by local governments to counter what they perceive to be a hard pendulum swing in favor of corporations at the expense of individuals. I think it would probably be difficult to credibly argue that this is not 
at least somewhat the case, especially post-Citizens United, which was a court case that allowed corporations in the U.S. to heavily influence politics as a freedom of speech issue. But the question remains beyond that, whether this hard swing in favor of the corporations is actually such a bad thing. After all, there are some things that corporate entities, that businesses operating on the principles and according to the incentives of the open marketplace, simply do a lot better than the government can do, or typically has done in the past. Innovation and iteration in particular, these are spaces where businesses flourish. And as I've mentioned before on this podcast, some of the services made possible due to these innovations, like those that come with Amazon's Prime subscription model, would be difficult for any other entity to match. The company invested heavily in a variety of infrastructure they invented and riffed on a collection of other existing ideas, they outcompeted their marketplace competitors, and as a consequence, they can offer generally superior services compared to what anyone else can do. Now, superior here is dependent on which metrics we are using to gauge success. A bus system and a fleet of Uber cars are very different things that operate in seemingly similar fields, but generally for different purposes. A highly optimized bus system could conceivably overlap with and outperform a fleet of ride-hailing cars by some standards, but it would be tricky to achieve, for instance, the door-to-door convenience of an Uber ride. Likewise, fleets of cars, even if made more convenient and cheap by making them summonable by an app on demand, they can do a lot of what bus lines do when they are optimized. But both buses and ride-hailing service cars have imperfections, and they generally work best in tandem when they operate alongside each other. Those who can afford the Uber or need its privacy or door-to-door convenience can use that, freeing up more seats on the cheaper area-to-area rather than door-to-door bus. We are seeing a boom in other types of smaller transport as well, including bikes and scooters, some of which have little electric motors built in, and a cheaper price tag than most of the other ride-hailing car services. So those implemented into the larger scene provides even more variation and potentially even more value for everyone involved. Any one of these entities could conceivably replace all of the others, but they would leave gaps and would not be ideal for some use cases and some people. Working in parallel, though, they fill essentially all the gaps, but they also chafe at having the competition. Uber wants to be the only force on the road because that's what corporations do, and the bus systems suffer when ticket sales go down due to an increase in ride-hailing service popularity. The trick is finding the balance point between these two types of transportation, and more broadly, figuring out where governments shine, what they do well and optimally, and where it might be better to swap in private market-based solutions. Pushing too far one way or the other leaves us lacking in innovation or humanity, convenience or cost. Blending them together, though, if we can figure out the right composition, is more likely to give us the best of both worlds with fewer downsides. Now, all of this is happening, by the way, under the looming shadow of a broader change, a broader set of changes in the world of business and employment. I've always 
personally thought that a lot of socialist ideals, particularly the more extreme ones, only really make sense if we have technologies that allow us to step away from the scarcity mindset that we have had since we achieved consciousness in our primordial days. And though we are still not there, we are beginning to see how that might be possible, how a post-scarcity world might work, or might not work, even if all the pieces are in place. And that is shifting us toward another potential conflict that could result in some serious discomfort for both corporations and governments if we do not start planning for the next steps in actionable ways, and preferably sooner rather than later. Some professions, like truck driving, are so sprawling and so economically important in countries like the US that automating them as completely as possible makes perfect sense in terms of profit and in terms of safety. Thousands of lives a year could be saved by successfully automating the truck driving industry alone. At the same time, there are 3.5 million truck drivers in the United States. Can you imagine what would happen if a reliable autonomous truck came along and put all of those people out of work? Even if it didn't happen all at once, but maybe over the course of five or ten years, that would be massive. That is a huge number of people, and potentially their families as well, who suddenly cannot afford to eat or pay their rent. And that changeover could happen in a very short period of time. Not much of a runway for transition there, to retrain all those people for other types of work. Not to mention the resources required, and the chance that there simply won't be any other jobs available for which these people would be qualified. And that's just one industry. It's predicted that over 70% of all food industry jobs will be automated in the near future. And there are nearly 4 million employees in the fast food industry alone here in the United States. That's a lot of unemployed people, or people in between work with perhaps few or zero transferable skills that will be usable by other employers. So long term, it makes sense to keep our eyes on those larger issues. It's vital that we maintain a balance between innovation and focusing on the rights of the individual, on a person's worth and humanity. But the conversation needs to be moved up a level to the broader considerations that are likely to shape both of those spaces in the very near future. I've mentioned the concept of a universal basic income on the show a few times before, a UBI being essentially a relatively small payment made to each person each month, no matter what. Let's say $1,000 a month just for living. And that payment would likely be just enough to pay for one's expenses. So that, for instance, if you find yourself without a job because the robots have taken over your industry, you will not be left homeless and unable to feed yourself. You will be able to take some time off to learn a new skill. Or you will be able to take some time with your family until a new opportunity comes along. It's a safety net, much like other social programs, but one that is more universal and offered to everyone. It's also something that being universal would not carry the same stigma that some social programs do today. The implication being that you are not a good person or you are lazy because you require government assistance. There is a decent chance that many more people in a whole lot of different fields will find themselves needing this type of assistance in the very near future. And without a socially acceptable means of distributing those resources, we could have a lot of starving, angry, 
unhappy people wandering around, wondering why all these companies and their governments have betrayed them in this way. And that is a recipe for all kinds of horribleness for everyone involved that I think we would be better off trying to plan to avoid ahead of time. In the meantime, though, it's important to remember that most of the most useful socialist programs that are available today are also largely invisible because we've come to take them for granted. Many people who preach the gospel of self-sufficiency conveniently ignore or forget that they use government-maintained public roads, water that has been treated for pollutants, and are protected by a state of law, just like everyone else. There are many different conclusions one could reasonably draw from that information, but it's important context that is easily forgotten or overlooked. At the same time, many governments are corrupted by those who run them, they are slowed down to a crawl by rust-like inefficiencies, and in some cases they are even captured by the economic forces that they are meant to regulate. Capitalist systems, on the other hand, are prone to overreach, especially when it comes to things like pollution and resource usage, and even things like road congestion and discomfort for the many in favor of the few, in favor of their customers and their shareholders. But these are also tools that do some things very, very well. Many of the benefits that we enjoy through our socialist systems would not have been possible had they not been invented and developed by capitalists, by capitalistic systems first, in accordance with a different set of incentives and rules. We should not demonize all capitalist entities for their downsides any more than we should castigate all government and socialistic entities for theirs. And if we're being intellectually honest, we should allow ourselves to celebrate the good that comes from one side, even if we tend to favor the trade-offs and benefits that are inherent in the other. Neither side of this spectrum is utterly reliable, and both have their own priorities and strengths and weaknesses. Favoring one side absolutely 100% of the time is almost certainly the result of unthinking blind loyalty. As tends to be the case with most things, the ideal line to walk will be somewhere in between the two, in the gray area between these extremes. And it's up to each of us to decide for ourselves where that line should be drawn and how best to move today's line in that direction. The book that I'd like to recommend today is entitled, But What If We're Wrong? Thinking About the Present as If It Were the Past by Chuck Klosterman. And I actually found a really great summary for this book that sums it up better than I could, posted up on Goodreads, so I will read you that to describe what this book is about. Quote, We live in a culture of casual certitude. This has always been the case, no matter how often that certainty has failed. Though no generation believes there's nothing left to learn, every generation unconsciously assumes that what has already been defined and accepted is probably pretty close to how reality will be viewed in perpetuity. And then, of course, time passes. Ideas shift. Opinions invert. What once seemed reasonable eventually becomes absurd, replaced by modern perspectives that feel even more irrefutable and secure. Until, of course, they don't. 
But what if we're wrong visualizes the contemporary world as it will appear to those who will perceive it as the distant past? Chuck Klosterman asks questions that are profound in their simplicity. How certain are we about our understanding of gravity? How certain are we about our understanding of time? What will be the defining memory of rock music 500 years from today? How seriously should we view the content of our dreams? How seriously should we view the content of television? Are all sports destined for extinction? Is it possible that the greatest artist of our era is currently unknown, or weirder still, widely known, but entirely disrespected? Is it possible that we overrate democracy? And perhaps most disturbing, is it possible that we have reached the end of knowledge? End quote. Definitely a worthwhile book. I have absolutely enjoyed it. If any of that sounds interesting, I recommend picking up a copy. It is again called But What If We're Wrong? Thinking about the present as if it were the past, and the author is Chuck Klosterman. You can find out more about my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. I'll be going on tour in the near future. You can find tour dates, an explanation of that tour, and you can purchase tickets at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.